We are jumping into a new series. We've been going through, um, if you guys have been here the last couple weeks, we have been doing a series on holiness called Set Apart, and we're transitioning into a book study. Uh, that would, the last series would have been what's called a theme study or a topical study on a particular word or theme like holiness, uh, but we try to go back and forth between theme studies and then just going through books, and this is going to be one of the book studies, and we're going through First Thessalonians, and the name of the series, we're calling it The Hope Factor for reasons that will become clear hopefully by the end of this introductory sermon, but uh, here's the reason why we're going through this book, is that First Thessalonians actually serves as a great follow-up to a series on hope, uh, sorry, to a series on holiness, because there's this idea in scripture, uh, a really, really important metaphor for holiness is this idea that holiness is about the church, which is referred to as the bride of Christ, preparing herself or itself for a future wedding with Jesus. That's the best metaphor, we can, earthly way we can understand it. It's probably infinitely even more beautiful than a wedding. It's hard to comprehend. We're talking about really amazing things here, but the, a wedding is the best way we could try to understand it. And so that, that metaphor is all throughout Revelation and various other places. And so the idea is that we as the church are called to be holy and pure and all those kinds of words, not just because we want to live squeaky clean lives because it's less bumpy or something or it's what God really wants us to do for some reason. It's actually a window into what the purpose of our lives are. We are meant to be faithful and wed to God, in a sense. Again, the metaphors fail us to a certain extent, but it's, it's called covenant relationship. That's what a marriage is. It's a covenant relationship, and that's what God wants with you and I. And so it stands to reason that if a covenant relationship, a faithful relationship, is what God wants with you and I, then holiness and purity and the things that are obvious when it comes to a, a man and wife sort of scenario become also very obvious when we think about our covenant relationship with God. And the reason why Thessalonians is, well, actually, let me, let me, let me read out Ephesians 5.25. And the purpose of holiness is a future wedding for which we've been made pure. Let me read this verse for us. Yeah, it says this. Husbands, love your wives. Just as, I love when, as soon as Paul tries to talk about marriage, he gets lost in, he immediately reverts back to talking about Jesus and the, and the church. He just can't talk about for marriage for very long before going right back to how it relates to, to Jesus and the church. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to sanctify her, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a glorious church without stain or wrinkle or any such blemish, but holy and blameless. So we have this future idea, this future hope for which purity and holiness is motivated. And the cool part is, is that uh, Jesus is the one that actually makes us pure. Like how, how beautiful can this image get? Like not only are we meant to be... <laughs> in a covenant relationship with him, but all the ugliness and the unfaithfulness and the unholiness and the unpurity, if that's a word, in us is actually cleansed and washed by him because he loves us that much. I mean, it's a very robust, beautiful picture. So, holiness is motivated for us by our love for Jesus and the hopeful expectation of being with him now and forever. That's what the point of it all is. And if you didn't get that from the series over the last five weeks, now you know. So what's crazy about this is that the whole Christian life 
is actually framed by this future hope. The whole Christian life is framed by what are we hoping for in the future? What are we hoping happens? If I'm going to be holy and if I'm going to be pure and I'm going to follow and do what he asked me to, if I'm going to be faithful, it's all unto something out in the future, this future hope. And this has dramatic implications into how we live every day. And so here's the catchy little phrase for you that we're going to be using throughout the, throughout the series. And it's this. You can put it up on the screen. Is what you hope for is what you live for. This is what we're going to be talking a lot about. And, I mean, it stands to reason, right? If you hope to be rich and famous, that's going to really dictate how you spend today and tomorrow and Tuesday because you're going to be working towards that future hope, right? It's kind of obvious. And so if we have a future hope that is about the full coming together of a covenant relationship with God, that might affect Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday a little bit. That might affect the decisions that we make. The question is, is, is that what we're hoping for every day? Does that hope fill our hearts? I, I think, just as a bit of an aside, what can happen sometimes in the church is that the church winds up talking about holiness and following the rules and the good things to do and the good advice and the things to do and not do and don't do drugs, kids, and it can kind of take on this sort of rules it, it, sometimes it tends to sound like that. And uh, I think a really good example of this is, uh, I was a little bit too young for it, but in the late 90s and early 2000s, there was kind of this wave through the church, through the Christian church, the evangelical church, in the States largely and also a little bit in Canada. And it's referred to now as what's called purity culture. Maybe you've heard this term before. But there was a, a real press towards from the stage, from the pulpit, people talking about what it looks like to live holy lives in terms of dating and marriage and sex and those sorts of things. And it was a very popular thing to talk about. And obviously, God really cares about those things. And obviously, the Bible has lots to say about how to go about that area of our lives and how to be pure in those areas. It, it does care about it. But what happened, and this is people kind of looking backwards at it, there was lots of good things, but there were some not so good things. And one of the not so good things, I, I'll tell a story to articulate it. Again, I was a little bit too young, but I had, I had friends that are about 10 years older than me that would describe going to conferences in like the early 2000s in the midst of sort of the purity culture phase. And um, there's this one session that my friend tells me about, big, you know, concert for 17-year-olds or whatever, right? And the name of the session was called Crush the Crush. <laughs> Makes me gag a little bit inside. And the point was, it's not holy or good or pure if you have a crush on someone too early, so let's crush the crush. It's like, ooh, that's so cringy. And then they go on to say, repeat after me, kids. You can wait. It will be great. Ugh. I don't know what the it is, but we can take some guesses. You can wait. It will be great. Now, man, what that just did, that I'm sure the person on the stage was really trying to prevent heartache and brokenheartedness for 17-year-olds, and I'm sure their hearts were great. But what tends to happen is what that little repeat-after-me sentence does is it actually takes the focus for holiness and purity off of the groom and the point of holiness or purity becomes being fulfilled by your future marriage or sex or something. 
Like, do you see how purity and holiness actually stops being motivated by the future robust hope of Jesus coming and saving us? And like, that's the point of living a holy life. Not so that I can get something out of this life. Although, yeah, it's pretty good advice to not date until you can back it up with marriage. That's good advice. It's a really good idea. But it's, you see how short of, of what the purpose of holiness really is. So this is important for us to know because what you hope for is what you live for. And if what you're hoping for is just, I want to have a good marriage or I want to be successful, or then what happens is, is we start living for not the actual hope that the Bible's talking about. The actual hope the Bible's talking about isn't you're going to be fulfilled in this life completely in your career and your marriage and your... I mean, those things tend to happen when we follow Jesus. There's really good things that happen when we put him in charge. But it's really important that we know as we begin this series, what is that future hope? What is it? And let's have a good idea of what that is. So the reason why we're looking at the Thessalonian church is because they were a great example of a church that remained faithful and holy and pure, and, and they lived out what they hoped for. They were a great example. They, they connected the dots between the, what's in the future and how they lived in a really great way. And Paul affirmed them. He reminded them of all the things they were doing well. He encouraged them. And so that's why we're going to look at this church. We're going to be able to mine out what does it look like to be the bride of Christ that is hoping for him, that's hoping for him. And what does that mean? How does that shape our lives? So a little bit of backstory for the book of Thessalonians for us. Uh, Acts 17 does a great job. We can just read Acts because it, it, it says how the church in Thessalonica was birthed. So let's read it together just so we have the, the backstory. Acts 17 verse 1. Now when they, being Paul and Silas, um, had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, who I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, is, which is where Paul and Silas were staying, seeking to bring them out into the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men, who have turned the world upside down, have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city... Authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So here's what happened, is Paul and Silas come and preach the gospel for three weeks only. It says three Sabbaths, not a long time, to, to, to see people come to know Jesus and then plant a church. Three weeks, Okay. And the riots got so bad, and Paul and Silas were in so much danger that they had to sneak out the back door and kind of leave this new, brand new church to whatever they managed to say on three Sabbaths. <laughs> That's a... Uh... And so what happened is Paul is feeling a little worried that as he moves on to Corinth and Athens and some other places in Greece, he's thinking in the back of his mind, he's like, oh, I wonder how those Thessalonians are doing. Man, we kind of left them in a lurch. We had to run. And... Uh, 
I hope they're doing well. And you can, he's, he's pained and there's, there's a worry and an agony in his heart. So what he does is he sends back Timothy. He sends Timothy to go, can you go check on them? Can you go check on those Thessalonians for me? I'm worried about them. And Timothy comes back with a report that's glowing. And the book that we have called 1 Thessalonians is Paul expressing his joy to that church for the good report that he received from Timothy, okay? So we're gonna, today we're just going to go through the first 10 verses of 1 Thessalonians and see what it is that Paul is so happy about. Starting in verse 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by the hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to see something. I, put, I highlighted some things for you. Uh, there's work, and there's labor, and there's endurance. Those are visible signs of something that changed in their life. Like, you can see that. You can see work. You can see labor. Another translation says good deeds. Uh, and endurance. Obviously, whatever happened to these Thessalonians, in that very short amount of time, produced visible difference in their life. And that visible difference was produced, prompted, and inspired by faith, love, and hope. And so do you see how there is a gospel, there is a future hope that is directly connected with their work and their endurance and their good deeds and their... Do you see how those worlds are being brought together? Their hope, what they, what they long for, what has gripped their hearts, actually has a connection to the way that they spend every day in such a way that everyone notices it. I see your work, I see your good deeds, I see the way that you live. And so Paul is overjoyed that he gets a report back that, he, that his tiny little fledgling three-week-old church has a faith and a hope and a love that looks, that is visible to the world around them. That's an incredibly glowing report. Even in such a short time. What better evidence would you want if you were Paul getting that report back? Like, would you want Timothy to come back and said, hey, uh, I asked them and they remembered all your sermons. <laughs> they remembered your points and they they showed me their journals. <laughs> it's like, that, I mean, maybe those things were true also, but they were living it. They were living it. Now, this must have been some conversion. So now I'm kind of leaning in. If you've got a church that's that young, like imagine if you came to church three times and you didn't know who Jesus was and you came three times and after three times we sent you off to plant a church. Wow. Okay, that's, I mean, this is like a bold turnaround. So what's going on? What is the nature of this conversion of theirs that had such great effect so quickly? Like now I'm leaning in and interested because I'd love if my work was produced by faith and I'd love it if my, my good deeds were motivated by love and my endurance was motivated by the hope I have in the gospel. Like that sounds like the Christian life I want to live. So what did, they, what did they know about Jesus? And so thankfully, Paul gives us a little window and he, he points out, here's what happened to you. Here's why I, we all see this in you now. And he goes on to explain what he sees. The, he goes on to explain right now the evidence, the elements of their conversion. And you should be interested because this is how, this is how you have a dramatic conversion to, uh, to following Jesus. He goes on in verse four. For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power 
with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with joy given by the Holy Spirit. So we got three things. Power. When they heard the gospel, it brought conviction to their heart. When God's presence filled them, and then because God's presence filled them, that often, if not always, comes with a conviction that's like, ooh, everything that's not of you needs to go right now, immediately. <laughs> if you've, that's, there's this beautiful simultaneous event when you invite God's spirit into you where you're filled with hope and joy and also conviction at the same time. Because you're like, man, I want to serve you and love you. I want to be faithful to you. I want to be holy for your sake. And now all these things got to go. And I'm convicted of all the things that don't belong here anymore now that you're living inside me. And that is a powerful, I would argue, miraculous. Every time that happens, if you see, it, if you see conviction in the world around you, have you guys ever seen conviction on somebody? Have you ever been in a moment where you're just, maybe you're in a D group or you're in a one-on-one -on -one coffee and conviction just falls on somebody's heart? It's not condemnation. It's not you're a bad person. It's, oh my God, you want to live inside me and you want to be with me. What must I do? You know, what must I do to be saved and have this become a reality? That's power. It's miraculous power. The second thing is imitation. They saw something in Paul and Silas, and then they just copied them. They saw godly leaders and went, I want to be like you. And they had an example. They had an example to follow. That's really important when we start following Jesus. We, we have people that go, I see God in you. And I see evidence of the gospel in your life. That's huge. That's a big part of coming to know Jesus. And the third one is they welcomed the message in the midst of suffering. That's just, I mean, we read the story earlier. This church was planted in the middle of a riot. <laughs> like It's like not only was it young, it's in a riot. And they welcomed it with joy from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brought conviction and joy. Super cool. So what's the effects of that? Let's keep reading. Here's what happened. Here's what happened. This is Paul's observation. That's what your conversion was like. Way to go, guys. That's what I saw happen. Now here's what happened as a result. Let's keep reading. Verse 7. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Meaning probably the whole like, early church. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. Uh, their holy lives that were like future hope connected to their everyday living gave hope to the global early church. Like that's how a powerful and effective living for Jesus is. That's how powerful and effective it is when we let him be in charge and truly transform us and bring conviction. The world knows about it. And they were probably just, they didn't, they didn't know. They're just faithfully serving and doing what Paul and Silas told them to do. And then Paul goes, everybody's talking about your faith. Everybody's talking about it. I didn't even need Timothy to tell me. I heard about it. Thessalonica is a trade route. And so you come in there and, you, and you're a follower of Jesus. You find that church and then you, you leave again and you go tell somebody else, that church is incredible. They actually do stuff. They actually live it out. There's power encounters. They're in the midst of suffering, but they're still... My favorite, if you guys have ever seen the um, Bible Project videos, I was watching the Thessalonians one, and the, uh, the, the little part where it talks about, you know, this, where the, they get the report that 
the, the, the Thessalonians are like living in the midst of suffering and they're getting beat up. The cartoon is like four or five Thessalonians like with their thumbs up and a bunch of teeth missing and their arms in slings and a little speech bubble that says, we're good. <laughs> and so I just love that. Uh, that's, that's what happened to them and the whole world knows about it. The whole, the whole early church. So last thing we'll read today and then we'll spend a chunk, a little more time on this last verse and a half here. Here's the reason that Paul gives for how well this is going. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So it's from this final verse that we get the title of our series, The Hope Factor. And having hope requires two things, apparently, according to this verse. Turning from idols to serve God instead. And the second thing is waiting for Jesus to return and rescue us. Those are the two things in this verse. Turning from, turning from idols to serve God and waiting for Jesus to return and rescue us. That is the plan for hope. And we're going to unpack both of those things here real quick. Uh, a recurring theme in this book, fancy word is eschatology. It's the study of the end times. It's the study of Jesus coming back to judge the world and make it right and make it new. And uh, this can be a bit of a scary idea when we start talking about eschatology and what happens at the end. And maybe it should be a little scary. It probably should be. Um, this verse describes Jesus coming as the coming wrath. Okay, wrath's a fun word. We don't talk about a lot. Why is it called that? Why is it called the coming wrath? Well, if Jesus is truly loving and truly good, like we just sang about, that means he can't allow evil to endure forever. Eventually, he's going to draw the curtains on this situation we all find ourselves in here on earth and go, I, if I'm good and loving, I can't, I'm, I'm going to win. I'm going to win. And I'm going to destroy and get rid of everything that ruins my good world. Everything that's not following me and subjugated to me and following the way that I designed it, I'm going to have to get rid of all of those things. And so the coming wrath is God's goodness to end all the suffering. I'm glad he's wrathful because there's a lot to be wrathful about. And there's a lot of injustice and evil that is worth being wrathful, is wrathful a word? Being wrathful towards. I'm glad that it's part of what makes him good. Now here's where the problem comes, and you're probably already following me, is that how's he gonna do the fix the whole world and get rid of all the evil thing whilst, not without getting rid of me? We've talked about this in the past in our Bible Explained series, if you remember back like a year ago, and the, the tension of that series was, God's got to get rid of evil. And if he's got to get rid of evil, that means he has to get rid of my heart. The example we used a year ago was, uh, we all can find things that we don't want in this world anymore, that we could all agree on, something super terrible like human trafficking or something. And everybody goes, yeah, it'd be great if that was gone. And Jesus says, yep, I want that gone too, but I'm going to do you one better. We're going to get rid of lust like, yeah, human trafficking, obviously. How about, we, how about we get rid of the real problem of lust that has like 10,000 different ways to express it? Some of them are more damaging to other people than others, but at the end of the day, the source of every single one of those terrible sins is lust. 
So how are we going to get rid of that? And we start going, ooh, that means you got to get, get rid of me. If you're going to end the problem, if you're going to keep the problem at bay a little bit, like we could do a fundraiser, but if you want to end it, if you want to end it, like end evil, then the coming wrath is what's required. It's a little bit scary. So, <laughs> I mean, there's good news. We, before that time, need to be what the Bible calls justified. And if, you, if that word doesn't compute in your mind, I'll, Greek's always hard to translate. You always need like 10 words. And so my professor, uh, my New Testament professor said, if you don't understand what justified means, you can say righteousnessified. <laughs> and if you don't get that, you can say right relationshipified. <laughs> and just kept going on to try to give us more ways of understanding it. Justified means you've been made righteous, meaning you've been made in right, good standing relationally with God. That means there's nothing separating you anymore, and you've been made right. You've been justified, justice. So, Romans 5.1 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we can have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Since we've been justified by faith in Jesus, we can have peace with him. Now, this is interesting, because, I mean, if we're talking about eschatology, there's some war language in there. Like, Jesus is going to come ended. It's like a big battle, right? And so this verse is saying, if you've been justified by faith, you have peace with God. Okay, follow me. If we want to hope in God, the scripture is saying our hope is in his coming. <laughs> like, that's where our hope's supposed to lie. He's already came, and, but in his coming, that's, where, that's what we're all looking forward to. Now, how can you hope in him if you don't have peace with him? It becomes very awkward to put your hope in that if you're not at peace with God. And the classic thing you hear from old movies is, have you made your peace with God? It's not a cute saying. It's like, God's coming to end all the evil. He's, that's, I hope he does. And then you have to ask yourself a really important question, half a breath later, going, am I at peace with him? And you start to realize that the way we have peace with him is through this beautiful thing that called the gospel that is accessible to everyone because we're loved and Jesus did all of the work. And like you start to go there and you go, oh, oh, that's good news. Whew. But do you see how that's only good news after we go, there's a hope and it's about his coming to end all the evil. And now, wow, I really need the good news. <laughs> Like the hope really matters. What we're hoping for really matters. And I highly advise you, if you're not at peace with God through the work of Jesus, don't, like, that is not something to hope in. It's something to dread. The future's something worth dreading, which is a really hard way to live. It's a really hard way to live. Uh, and you start asking yourself these kinds of questions. I wrote some of them down. Like the future is just this black hole of we don't know what's next. God designed us in this really annoying way where we only know now and nothing about half a second from now. I don't know what's going to happen now. And then now, like I don't know anything moving forward. It's really frustrating <laughs> the way time works. We have no vision into the future. And it's a little bit dreadful, the mystery of all that what's next is actually a really scary thing to think about. And you realize how little control you have over it, right? And you start asking yourself questions. I've asked, I ask myself these questions like, have I done enough for whatever's next? Am I in for whatever's next? 
am I good? Am I doing the right thing? What is good? Is there a right thing to do? Is someone watching and keeping score? What is the score? How do I score? <laughs> like you, it's actually quite scary to go, what is, what is next? Mystery's dreadful. So you know what I do? When I feel a little afraid of the future and I really want to know what it is, and I've lost sight of what we're talking about today, like the gospel, like I want to know what's going to happen tomorrow and when I'm 42, you know, like that's my hope is like 42 has got to be a good year. And so if I want to do that, if I want to think any, if I want to, if I want to pull the timeline closer towards me, okay, we all do this every day. I don't, Jesus coming back, fine. What's going to happen next week? <laughs> and if you want to pull the timeline closer towards yourself, which we all do, because it's just kind of human nature. Um, what we have to start doing is putting our hope in worldly things, in earthly things. We all do this. If I want next year to go better, I'll put my hope in making as much money as I can this year. If I want to be less lonely next year, I'll put my effort in other relationships. If I want to be less insecure and feel more important, I will put my hope in my, I will start, if my hope is found in my career and being, and I need to be important, then I'm going to spend more time working and investing in that. Like we've been saying, what you hope for is what you live for, right? So there are some ways in which you can gain some semblance of like, okay, I get it. If I go to college, then I'll probably have a better job. And then like, phew, because I don't know what's around the corner. So I better get a degree or something, right? And we're trying to pull the timeline forward. You following? The Bible calls, I'm so sorry, but the Bible calls putting your hope in earthly things, idolatry. Ugh. Right? Like that is the definition. I hope that I'm secure next year, tomorrow. Money will work great. And we start living as if money is the thing we're hoping in. There's lots of ways to do that. Bible calls it idolatry. <laughs> And so, uh, you know, maybe it's, I put my hope in, I want to have joy, so I'm going to put my hope in leisure. And like all these things we've been talking about, we know instinctively, do they really provide like hope, like capital H hope? Have you spoken to somebody who has lots of money and they were hoping to fill the void of purpose or security in there? It, we all know those things don't work. We all know they don't. And yet, to pull the timeline forward, we go, oh, it's going to be my job or it's going to be my leisure. So, this church in Thessalonica wasn't doing that. They weren't pulling the timeline forward. They kept their eyes fixed on the future of futures. And their hope was placed in a good place, not in idols. Right? Paul says, you turn from your idols to serve the living God Right? That was step one. Don't put your hopes in a false place. Um, remember, we read the story. This church wasn't doing that because we know that they weren't because in, that, in, that, um, in the story where the church was birthed, do you remember? We just read it. How people were freaking out because what they were asserting, what Paul and Silas and I suppose the, their converts in those early days were asserting was that there was a different king than Caesar and his name was Jesus. Here's what's so interesting about Caesar. Is Caesar called himself a god. And do you know what he promised? Peace and security. Peace and security. In Latin, it's, what is it? Pax et securitas. And if you looked on a coin, 
you would see Pat ex Securitas. If you looked on a wall in a Roman colony like Thessalonica, you would see pictures like Caesar's face and Pat ex Securitas. Like you want a more vivid example of worship me and I will bring you peace and security. There you go. And so Thessalonians, Thessalonians are freaking out because going, whoa, 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 on every wall and on every coin, the idol of Caesar is meant to bring us peace and security. And you're saying there's somebody else? You're messing with me. Like, this is kind of working. This is kind of working for me. Caesar really has brought me peace and security. And it worked. It's called Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. It worked for like 300 years-ish. And then it didn't. But it worked for a little while. So people didn't want that messed with. Right? <laughs> so recognize the pressure that this church was under to get rid of idols. They're literally rioting. They're literally rioting because of the assertion that Caesar's an idol, not the living God. Where's my peace and security going to come from? Actually, you know what I'm going to do? Church in Thessalonica, as a, as a, as a Greek who worships Caesar, I'm going to drag you out of your church. I'm going to beat you to a pulp and take all your money and go, peace and security. You think you have peace and security? Look at you. And the cartoon is, we're good right? The cartoon is, oh, we're good. That's a powerful image. Because if you had a church that was dragged into the streets and beaten and still proclaimed that they had the actual peace and security, whoa! Yeah, I think the early church is going to hear about that around the world. So my question is, have you ever caused a riot in somebody's life? by calling what they're hoping in an idol before? Like maybe in more words than that. I highly advise using more words than that. But have you ever gone, it seems like you're hoping that your peace and security comes from this relationship, job, pursuit, goal, thing that will end. And have, you, have they rioted? Have they gone, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, I moved to Canada for this, or like, I moved cities for this. Like, my hope is in this. And yeah, yeah, Jesus. But like, I've given up a lot to be part, to be a Roman citizen, so to speak. Yeah, riots can sometimes break out. They can. Flip question. Have you ever rioted when someone started to denounce the things that you were hoping in? I feel like I've done that once. I put my hope, many times actually, but the most example I can think of is I put my hope in being a super great guy. I wor- it, it's a little embarrassing. It's not even money or recreation or career or something. It was myself, which I guess are all versions. Those are all versions of ourselves, I suppose. But like for me, it was really, my hope is going to be in being a great guy that people like and people think is awesome. And I worked really hard at that. You know, and then my amazing wife came along and said, I'm not buying that. I'm not buying that. Uh, I had been working on a statue called Jonathan Mitchell that I was trying to give people. And some people were like, oh, thank you. Actually, that's kind of nice. And you are a great guy. And I will put that on my wall. And I went, yes. (laughs) And (laughs) And then Steph didn't want that. And she's like, I think that's about you. I think that's about you. I think, that, I, think you're, I think your hope is in your awesomeness. And that freaks me out. And it should have. 
And a little riot went on in my heart, being like, I, do you know how hard I have worked on this? <laughs> on being a little bit better than the next guy? My hope was being my hope was in being a little better than the next guy. You want to talk about something that's not going to last? You want to talk about something Jesus was furious about? Oof. So, why weren't these amazing people giving in to idol worship? Why were they enduring persecution? Well, remember the elements we pointed out, guys. Remember the things we pointed out already. First one, you can put that slide up. The elements one, yeah. Remember, here's why they didn't go back to Caesar. Here's why, when Paul and Silas said, this is what you should be hoping in, and then when the crowd rioted and said, ah, no, you should be hoping in Caesar, here's why they didn't go back. Paul told us, our gospel came to you with power. These people experienced God's power. They felt conviction, and their lives changed. Do you ever feel conviction, like real conviction? Your life's different. You go, I can't go back. That worked. Like it worked. Like my relationships are better and I'm whole and I'm filled with joy. Conviction works. I'm not going back. What about, what about uh, you know the lives you lived among you for your sake, you became imitators of us in the Lord. Uh, notice how they're imitating Paul, Silas, and the Lord, which must have meant that whatever Paul and Silas were doing looked a lot like the Lord. You know? Like they were imitating Paul and Silas, but also Jesus. And it helps that they had leaders that looked like Jesus. That's a great definition of leadership. Just try to look like Jesus. And so they didn't have to pick between following Paul and Silas and following Jesus because they were all being led by the Spirit. And have you seen people that are following the Spirit? You want to be like them. Like you want to you be around them. And you want to, it changes you when you're around people like that. I'm not going back. I'm not going back. These people's lives are different. Last one, they, the same presence of God that brought them conviction also brought them joy in the midst of suffering. Man, if they felt joy in the midst of suffering, how would you go back? How would you go back? So, I think the Thessalonians said, wait a second. Those are false hopes. Those are false hopes. They don't work because the gospel came to me with power. And I was changed and I was saved. And I, I, I know who Jesus is and I want to be faithful and holy and pure. That's the real hope. So then comes the last thing we'll say. This is the next step. First one is turning from idols and serving God. And the last one is to wait for his son from heaven. Right? We turn from the gods of this world who often promise this beautiful thing called immediacy. If sin has a perk immediacy has got to be the main one. I guarantee you that our sins of choice do not have a lot of lag time between their, what, us committing them and, that, and their benefit being realized. They're always quick. They're always quick. And yet, our hope is wait. Wait. Wait for his son to return and rescue us. Now, now it makes sense why we want to shorten the timeline up, because I don't like waiting. I don't like waiting. I think what's true about the gospel, and it's the hardest thing to articulate, is the already and not yet of it. Yes, we have already received salvation and access to God, and we are with him now. That is 100% true. And that's 
where it has to start. And then there's also this not yet, where God's saying, we're in an age where people get to choose me and choose covenant relationship with me. I've made it the whole way for it, but they do get to choose me in this time. And there is, it's not here in its fullness, but you have to hope for it. Put your hope in that. In the same way that you're hoping in me for this right now, immediate access to me, in the same way hope for the future of when it comes in its fullness. And sometimes we feel the already, and I love, the, I love feeling the already. And I'm so glad God gives us those moments of like, oh, you're already here and king of my heart. I see that and I know it to be true. And I'm glad that we feel the not yet, that we get to hope for something that's bigger than this world and still to come. So how can we wait? Last thing I'll say. We can wait because we can be sure of two things. We can be sure of the coming wrath. We can be sure of that. Depends on how you, how you feel about that. Maybe it doesn't fill you with hope. It fills you with something else. In which case, we get to have a conversation about what does the gospel say about, being made, about making peace with God. And his name is Jesus, and he came to make peace between God and man at his expense. That is the good news. And so the coming wrath becomes something that you are hoping for because the evil will end and you'll get to be with him. And it is, it's, 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 it's scary, but it's beautiful and it's substantial because that's your coming king. It's your coming king who's gonna rule. So justice will be paid either by Christ or by us, but it will be paid. It will be paid. So we know that to be true. One more fact that Paul slips in here in this last little passage that I'm glad he did. The other thing we can be sure of is that Jesus was raised from the dead. Which means, which means that death is not a part of our future. That means that your life and its perspective is now stretched out across eternity. And the decisions you make tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday are not about how to have your 50s be great. They're about how to have eternity be great because Jesus proved that death is no longer a thing in his kingdom. And the time scale that you and I are computing every single one of our decisions on is eternal because he proved death was no longer had a hold on people who followed him. He proved, he proved it by raising from the dead. So we can wait. So we can wait and we can, and we can hope. Because we're not trying to have next year be great. We're going, Lord, come. And, and, and the oldest prayer in the church is, come, Lord Jesus. Like, that was the first prayer. And, like, this would, it would just be great if you came. <laughs> and that was everybody's hope. And th that hope is the best thing to dictate all of our decisions every day. And we go, Lord, help me be holy. And help me live for that hope. I'll read you one last verse. Romans 8, verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Guys, we're talking about having hope in eternal life. And as we look at this series, we're gonna be looking at a church that's constantly going, my hope is in him. And if Jesus was raised from the dead, it means death's no longer a thing and so I'm hitching my bandwagon to yours.
And I find, my friends, that when we do, we get to live what we call the Christian life, which is making every decision in response to that hope. And it's the only hope that's actually worth banking on. It's the only one that's been proved by death and resurrection. And it's the one we're supposed to hope in. And so over the next weeks, we're going to unpack how we go about living out that hope. But the first place we have to start is that the hope factor (laughs) dramatically shapes our lives. I'm going to invite the worship team up as I pray for us. Lord, I thank you that you've called us to be a holy people, but not because you need us to be holy before you'll love us. Not because you want us to be pure and good before you love us. Lord, while we were still sinners, you died for us so that we could have peace with you. So that we could have peace with you for eternity. And so Lord, I ask that you would give us vision. That you would give us vision of what is to come. That you would help our hearts to be gripped. Gripped by your majesty, and and you, you fill our hearts with expectation for the end of injustice. Lord, thank you for dwelling in us and making us alive. Thank you that our flesh has been crucified with you, that the things that were gonna die anyway have already been killed. And so we keep our hands clenched tightly in yours saying, you're you're my hope. Everything else is a false hope. Lord, we were designed for relationship with you, for eternity. That's what we were made for. It's your original design. And we choose today to say, Lord, we want that. We want to reclaim being your image bearers, what we were originally designed for. So come, Holy Spirit. Come, Lord Jesus. Fill us, fill your people with hope here today. I feel like there's maybe a few of you that maybe came in with um, a bit of a hopeless feeling. Maybe the things and the your attempts to pull time frames closer towards yourself keep not working out. And so I just want to give God a uh, space just right now to speak to you personally. Lord, what would you have to say about that? What would you invite us to hope in? with hope. In Jesus' name, amen.